I'll read all the way through chapter 10. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that clans, most of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon, and it was the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivilah, where there was gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife both were naked, and we're not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. When there is in the center of, um, of the campus where I used to be a campus minister, there is an emblem, and it's a song quote by Joni Mitchell, and it says, um, we are stardust, we are carbon, we are um, billion-year-old carbon stuck in the devil's bargain trying to figure out how to get back to the garden. Some of you who know Joni Mitchell's lyrics will remember that song. And while the theology of that is horrible, it does speak to the longing we have to get back to that. And in the story of the garden, 
you see these amazing themes at play. The waterfall's power and the white water and the force was overwhelming to me as a snot-nosed, pimple-faced 13-year-old boy in Boy Scout Troop 15. And Daryl Kirkland took us to Mount Elbert at the foot of the greatest peak in Colorado. And we saw trickling out of Mount Elbert in the Sawatch Mountains this little stream that became the headwaters for the Arkansas River, a river that meanders its way down from the Sawatch Mountain Range by Tulsa for a visit on its way to the mighty Mississippi. And I remember Daryl Kirkland said to us that boys, rivers can begin with snow melt or they can come from underground springs with waterfalls. They can come with power or the trickle of a stream. And no matter how they start, the headwaters of rivers eventually channel their course all the way to the ocean. And just like rivers began in different ways, and just like the river we see in the Garden of Eden, which watered it, began with the word of the Lord, so also each of us discover and uncover our own gifts to use in the kingdom of God in unique and various ways. And the church institutionally has encouraged certain tools through the years. Do you remember in, in the 80s, it was spiritual gift inventories. Do you remember those? In the 90s, it was walks to Emmaus. In the 2000s, it was service in the midst of crises. And some of us have benefited from many of those tools to understand how we are uniquely gifted and shaped. And we, some of us, have used all those tools and found them to be very helpful. But whatever tool that you use, one thing is certain. Your gifts, your unique design is discovered in action in the community of God's people as they forge you and mold you and reinforce to you what your gift is. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see five themes that begin to emerge in these first couple of chapters that lay the foundation for us to understand how we're uniquely made. And those five themes are, number one, dominion. Number two, provision. Number three, fruitfulness. Number four, limits. And number five, I can't remember. There are five, I promise. And he uses those unique ways to help you and encourage you in how you are to live out your particular calling on earth. And this morning, what I want to talk to you about is this first one, is dominion. What does it mean for us to be able to rule, to be able to have dominion in ways that reflect the image of God. And I wanted to spend several weeks talking about these various themes that show up. They don't show up in the same order in Genesis 1 and 2, but in, they do show up again and again in these two chapters. So first, equipping you at the headwaters, dominion. The principles are found in chapters 1 of Genesis, and the application of them are found in chapter 2. So principle number one, to work in God's image means that we exercise dominion. To work in God's kingdom as God's image bearers 
means that we exercise dominion. Dominion, relationships, fruitfulness, provision, and limits. Those are the five. Dominion, relationships, fruitfulness, provision, and limits. And to work in God's image means that we exercise dominion. What does that mean? One of the consequences of being made in God's image is that we are to, as the text says in Genesis 1.26, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Man was created to extend God's beauty, God's image. In the ancient Near East, kings would set up statues of themselves to remind the people subjected under their rule that he is the image of God. That his image means that he is sovereign over that area. And the God of Israel, the one true God, turns that on his head and says, I'm going to make you in my image. You are going to be my statues. You are going to be my mirrors to reflect back to the world my glory. You are my image bearers. And so we are to live our lives with a pattern and a work that is a reflection of him. We are not the originals. He is. And it is not our purposes that drive us, but it's his. We are mirrors back to him of his rule and his dominion. Ian Hart writes that exercising royal dominion over the earth as God's representative is the basic purpose for which God created us. Man is appointed king over creation and responsible ultimately to the king to manage and develop and care for his creation. And this includes physical work, whether that's serving those who are ill or passing out bulletins or handing out legal advice or business plans, whatever it is. God has called you with particular ways to be his image bearers in the earth. Reflecting on... uh, Psalm 135, John Calvin, years ago, wrote, The whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power of God. And Jonathan Edwards, preparing a sermon on Psalm 135, read Calvin's words and added to it. And he said, But the church is the orchestra of those attributes. Isn't that pretty? You are the orchestra of God's justice and power and wisdom. Do you think of yourself that way? Where are you, God, in the midst of this difficult year? Look ourselves in the mirror. Church, there is no white horse. There is no silver bullet. There is no secret of how we we are God's image. And it is our call together as we use our gifts and our talents together to reflect the image of God back to this city and back to this community and back to this state and back to this nation. You're the one who is to do it. It's not just me. It's not just our elders. It's not just our deacons. It's not just Pastor Scott. It's you. You are the ones who are to do ministry. And our job is to equip you and get out of the way. And some of you are doing it in amazing ways. You're leading incredible organizations. Some of you are doing it in the silent whisper of assembly lines where you're doing relatively similar things day in and day out, but you're doing it in a way that honors the king. And you're pushing back the darkness in small ways. Do you recognize yourself as image bearers who are called to extend his dominion 
for his glory's sake. It's interesting to note that when we are made in his image, notice male and female are made in his image. Boys and girls, young and old, no matter what your race or class or creed or political ideology may be, you're made in his image. That means that as Psalm 8 says, that he has ordained praise from the mouth of infants and of babes. The, the physically or mentally infirm are just as endowed with the image of God as whatever your picture is of the most complete, talented human being might be. And only in Christianity do we extend such grace and dignity to everybody, regardless of what they happen to believe. Do you demonstrate that? Do you demonstrate that? Because one of the problems with the... Um, the rising insurgency that we often see in division in our world is that the church, the church is the greatest remedy to this kind of Christian insurgency that we see and feel. It is the church that is able to say everybody is endowed with a sense of dignity and respect. And do you extend that? Or do you in your heart harbor hatred for somebody who differs from you politically? Do you harbor dissension or anger towards someone who they don't really want to wear a mask? Do you harbor dissension, anger towards your brothers and sisters? Do you see them as they are in the image of God and do you treat them in that way? Think about the implications of this for our calling. How does God use you in your world to push back the chaos and the darkness? What values does God bring to this community through you? What products or projects does God accomplish through you? Which people does God serve through you? What organizations does God build through you? What standards does God exemplify through you? And what ways as image bearers of God does your work display the God that we represent? When we finish a job, are the results such that we can say, thank you, God, for using me to accomplish that? The first principle is to work in God's image means that we exercise dominion. Secondly, practically, God equips people for the work of dominion. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the land, and there was no man to work the ground, verse 5. Abad in Hebrew. No man to till it, to cultivate it, to work it. God chose not to bring his creation to a close until he created a people to work for his glory and with him. Uh, one theologian named Meredith Klein put it this way, God's making the world was like a king planting a farm or a park or an orchard into which God put humanity to serve the ground and to serve and look after the estate. The entire story that Moses is telling the Israelites when they were in the wilderness of Genesis 1 and 2 is a picture of them taking the tabernacle and setting it up in the midst of the wilderness. The man is set in a garden, a temple-like space where God dwells intimately with his creatures. 
And the garden becomes a template for Israel's tabernacle where God's presence with his people will be especially present. And where God is, there also is his power. And so Moses is reminding them that you are called to care for the world, for his estate, which for Israel in the wilderness was the tabernacle set up temporarily. And for us today is the entirety of the world in your own unique callings as you extend the gospel through the proclamation of the gospel and through the cultural mandate of subduing and ruling over the earth. In the glory of the garden, uh, Rudyard Kipling once wrote, he compares England to the garden and he says, such gardens are not made by singing, oh, how beautiful, and then sitting in the shade. There is a needful job for everyone to do and it takes hard work and it takes all kinds of work to extend God's kingdom. And the last line of Kipling's poem says that half a prospering gardener's work is done upon his knees. And that's true for us as well, no matter what it is that you do Monday through Saturday. Half that work is done upon your knees because you're Christians viewing your vocation, equipped by the Holy Spirit to extend his dominion and his rule to the world. So the work of exercising dominion begins with hard work. God's Use of the words subdue and dominion, they don't give us permission to roughshod over other people or over his creation. Quite the opposite. We are to act as if we ourselves had the same relationship of love with his creatures that God himself does. There was a famous article that was written in the journal Science by a man named Lynn White Jr., who says that one of the reasons why the earth is in the place that it is today is because of Western Christianity and their dominion theology. And he goes on to argue that because Christianity is so um, anthropocentric, his words, it's so man-centered, this dominion theology has given them a kind of theology or permission to just treat the earth however they want. And when this article first came out, there was a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer who read that article and said, no, that is far too narrow and simplistic of a reading of what is happening. And he wrote a very famous book later um, called Pollution and the Death of Man in response to this article that Lynn White Jr. wrote in 1955. And he said, it is not Christianity as such, Schaeffer says, or the Bible as such that it has been responsible for fostering a narrow focus on humans to the detriment of the created order, but a narrow and superficial reading of the Christian story. It is only when Christianity is stripped away from a modern Western worldview that dominion becomes domination and the basis for environmental abuse and neglect. So please hear me if you are wondering why is it that the Christians just seem to turn a blind eye to all this care for the earth? May it not be. We are called to be stewards of the earth and care for it. And we hear you. There has been so much abuse. But it is not because of Christianity per se. It's because of a too narrow of reading of what the Bible actually teaches. He's called us to be stewards of it. To both harness and protect the earth. Yes, that is our calling. Harness its power and yet protect its beauty. That is is what dominion theology actually should produce in us, not the abuse and neglect of it. May it never be. In 
in return of the king, Tolkien wrote, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. We extend the image of the king as he equips us. And we are to serve the best interests of those whose lives touch ours, our family members, our employers, our employees, our friends, because we extend his dominion and his reign. Does that make sense? Do you see that in the text? Subdue and have dominion over the earth. That is not a license to be run over by others, nor is it a license to run over others. It is a license to mirror and reflect God's justice, goodness, and truth. The orchestra is the church of his attributes, as Edwards says. And so for many of us today, you are especially aware of of how human self-interest threaten the natural environment. If you're in the oil and gas industry, you have been the source of so much vitriol in the last 20 years, haven't you? You're aware of of the waste and the enormous, enormous efforts to restore that your industry has employed. Creation was meant for our use, yes. And we were meant to care for it and tend for it as you are doing, as you are fighting to do. Thank you. And while particular vocations or industries see it in a very direct way, all of us, all of us in the way that we exercise our dominion as his image bearers have particular calls. And for us at this church, at Trinity, there are three calls for us. The first is you are called to extend your dominion in worship. In worship, that sounds cute. It sounds like something a preacher would say. No, it is only in worship where you are able to recalibrate. As Kathleen Norris said on the front of the bulletin, what does she say? She says that worship grounds me again in the real world of God's creation, dislodging me from whatever world I have imagined for myself. We spend an entire week, most of us, reimagining our world outside of the gospel, and we fight as believers in community group, we fight as those who want to lead our families in the gospel to come back to the truest story of all and worship reorients you that. And so if you, if you are here, we are so grateful that you're here. Please make it a priority to keep coming. If you're at home and you've gotten out of the habit of worshiping with your family because it's hard to watch on a screen, would you consider how you can regather your family to look and to participate in worship even from home? Get back in the rhythm. There is power in the pattern, and there is a pattern to the power. God works in us through corporate worship. And so if you've gotten out of the habit of worshiping, hone back in in 21. Come back together. Fight to get back into the rhythm of worship because God changes you through worship, and he molds you into his image more and more in holiness and joy. The second way that we can particularly do this is through fellowship together. You don't, you don't only just see the image in worship, but you sharpen it through fellowship together. And in 2021 for our church, fellowship has got to be a key theme because look at us, like we, you miss each other. You can only see half our faces physically and metaphorically. We miss each other. And so there's gonna be more ways that we try to reintroduce each other. There may be name tags at some point in service. (gasps) 
There may be videos that come across. We may encourage you. Like, but please don't wait for me or Pastor Scott or the elders or your community group leaders to lead you. Like, initiate relationships. If you look, look at the empty chairs. A person's face was once in those chairs who is probably at home now watching. Have you talked to them? Have you seen them? Do you think about them? Take that next step and just text him and say, hey, I'm just thinking about you. We miss you. We'd love to catch up sometime and hear how you're doing. FaceTime with them. Reach out to them. Would you take the initiative, Trinity, even if you're at home and you're not at worship and you see people's faces in the screen as you watch worship, would you reach out? Take the initiative in 2021 to recalibrate together, to come together, because the church is not just a conduit of spiritual truth. You don't just come here to learn like students in a classroom. Trinity is an ecosystem of interconnected relationships, and those have been pulled apart. And it's not just our unique problem. It's, been that, it's that way for the entire global church right now. And our role is to find those loose ends and reconnect them back together. Would you take the initiative to begin to do that and not wait for the church to do it. You do it. The church institutionally. You do it. And thirdly, would you pray how you can begin to do the work of ministry? Dustin read earlier, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And when each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What does it mean for each person to know their part? What does it mean for each part to work properly? What does it mean for the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love? What metrics do you use to assess whether that's true? What does it mean for us all to grow together? Well, the first thing it means is that we recognize that we extend God's image by his dominion, and that he equips us to do the work of extending his glory and power. And he uses you in your own unique way, not comparing yourself to somebody else, but to being okay with how God made you and unfurling your wings and beginning to fly. Rivers start in all kinds of ways. And the way that you discover your gifts may come through varied ways. Crises, a slow trickle of a stream of assessing your gifts over time and the encouragement of others. But one thing that we know is true is that the one who came to rule the earth, Domini, the Lord, who could have easily dominated the earth and subdued the Romans, he gave up his life and he was subjected by them. He showed us what true dominion looked like and that he didn't earn his own way or demanded every turn. But he was a faithful steward to the Lord even when the, his father had different plans and his own desire. Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. It is Jesus Christ who demonstrated the greatest dominion of the world by giving his life away and dying on that cross for us so that we might one day find ourselves brought back into a world of perfection and love, of intimacy with the Father in heaven, to walk in the cool of the day with the Lord, but not in the garden, but in the city. 
That's what God is calling us to do. That is the story we must retell our children in the midst of media that is so hard to watch. That, my friends, is the beginning of equipping us to be the orchestra of his attributes through the world, through your gifts. Do you see it? Would you own it? Christ wants to give you that joy. Let's pray together.